I'm matchmaker Maria, the founder of Agape Match. For over a decade, I've combined four generations of family matchmaking tradition with modern relationship psychology, behavioral science, and dating trends. With this unique expertise, I answer your dating and relationship questions and interview experts to give you the tools to find or keep the love of your life. This is Ask a Matchmaker. On this week's episode, I interview Brandon Chadwick, the host of Narcissist Apocalypse podcast. He began interviewing survivors of narcissistic and domestic abuse on his podcast in 2019. He has published over 120 survivor stories and interviewed many experts in the field, from therapists to lawyers to domestic violence advocates and agencies. His philosophy going into the podcast was to allow a safe space to be real and not clinical. And his goal is to help survivors tell and validate their own stories, but to also validate and teach other survivors through their stories. You can listen to Narcissist Apocalypse on your favorite podcast listening app, Brandon. I can't tell you how excited I am to have you here. You're, the Agapi team is your biggest fan. Welcome to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. Well, thank you for having me and hello to the whole Agape team. <laughs> so if you don't know the Agape team, that's like what we call the member of my staff, uh, Agape Match. But um, but yeah, we it's, it's funny. Um, one of our matchmakers, Crisula, she discovered your podcast like two or three years ago before the pandemic. And she's, you know, every time something interesting happens, she like writes down like, oh, listen to this clip or listen to this episode. And then you did your enmeshment episode. Oh, holy smokes that she has shared that she shares. I see her sharing that link to like our followers at least once a day. So if you're wondering where random numbers come up high, that's from us. That's definitely from us. (laughs) The enmeshment podcast specifically, I think was my best interview I ever did with an expert. Let's talk about it. So first of all, you started, uh, you've had, you've interviewed over 120. Oh, now uh, we are at about, we've done 200 and I think 70 episodes overall. And I'm going to say 220 plus are survivor stories. Wow. So tell tell uh, tell my listeners who have never heard of Narcissist Apocalypse, what is Narcissist Apocalypse? So Narcissist Apocalypse is, I would say, more of a community podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. If, you know, a lot of people, it's not true crime. There's no bells and whistles. And we let someone who has experienced abuse from, you know, childhood abuse and, and neglect from disordered parents or non-disordered parents to relationship stories of uh, domestic violence and toxic relationships tell their story pretty much from beginning to end. And I, you know, there's, there's no kind of theme music in the sense of like no music in between or interludes or anything like that. Like a lot of true crime shows, even though this is true crime in a way, uh, but we just let people tell their stories from beginning to end uh, of what happened to them, of the abuse. And over time, we, you know, we try to create like a mandate as far as learning lessons uh, throughout the whole entire episode so people can start to recognize things that are happening in their relationships. But a big thing for me is always if someone can deep dive on how they're feeling, someone mm-hmm. will listen to how you're feeling for a very long time over a story. Someone can start telling a story. They might not be the best storyteller because we're not dealing with people that are natural storytellers. So 
they become more of a natural storyteller when they start to really get on their feelings. And even though everyone's story is different yet the same, everyone's feelings that are attached to moments are the same. And that gives people language for their own life where they can understand what they went through better. And it also gives them language to talk to other people who might not understand what they've gone through yet. But if they can repeat what they had just heard someone might be someone might say to them hey uh okay i get it i i see like how deep of a hole you might be in i mean i feel like it kind of orbits around validity like you hear another person's story you can relate to that story and it might not even be as extreme but just those small nuggets of someone's experience are like oh yeah i i, I remember dating someone like that and it and it just we didn't even go on a third date i just i fell off and and then it's like, oh, I guess that's what I, maybe that's what I avoided. Or maybe it's even more extreme. Like I was married to my abuser or I was raised by an abuser. And it's like, I always felt I was alone. And I think what Narcissist Apocalypse has done is created this community of people. It's a right? community like, I mean, of people. I feel like they congregate yeah. together. Yeah. And it, it's a very validating experience for everyone who's listening. And mm-hmm. I, I guess one of the other big things about it in which I kind of discovered as you kind of go along, you know, you do a podcast mm-hmm. and you don't know what you're doing when you're beginning. Totally. That it is also a show about self-discovery. And we're really pointing out a lot of stuff about what's going on in this person's life, even before these relationships happen and all the offshoots of the issues that are created. Uh, and you might've had issues kind of going in. You might've had no trauma at all going in, but sometimes you pick up very admirable, but unhealthy traits growing up. Um, do you see any patterns after so um, many, like after well, over 200 it, stories? It, well, the pattern, well, if I could call the show something different and be found, it would be called Patterns of Abuse. Uh, I guess okay, everything- tell me more ev- about that. <laughs> everything is a pattern. So everyone says, then didn't you see the red flags? Well, a red flag is not a red flag until it becomes a pattern. You have to kind of let it play out. In that Mm -hmm. way, unless you say, hey, this is a deal breaker, and I know you probably talk on your show, like, what are the deal breakers? Mm -hmm. If you have a list of deal breakers and someone hits three of those pretty quickly, you don't need your pattern anymore to form. You're like, I'm gone. And so we're looking for patterns. There's a pattern forming. And like, so people don't get into these relationships again. And you're just kind of looking for, okay, this happened once, this happened twice, this happened three times. Okay, a pattern has formed. And if you have like a whole list of these things and you start journaling these things, then those are the patterns. But the patterns of the people that are on the show, I guess the biggest thing that we you'll see is that most of them grew up as people pleasers or caretakers uh, of, of family members. So when you're a caretaker or a people pleaser, it's an easy role to get into and get sucked into someone who's not the person they say at the beginning. And then when you know, you're know you locked in and you're in this, I guess, the love bombing process has happened or the trust building, you know, an addiction is formed uh, with mm-hmm. them. And once that addiction is formed, you become that people pleaser. You become that caretaker. So after that, like those patterns that you might have grown up with start to work against you in the long run. And those people know those things about you. And a lot of time before the real serious, serious abuse begins, a lot of times they're just these little tiny tests. 
And those little tiny tests can be, for some people, it's like the constant texting and then like saying, hey, um, how come you didn't text me back? I was worried about you. And those, the, that kind of gets kind of smoothed over. So that constant texting is done in a way where it looks like it might be loving, but it's really mm-hmm. controlling. And so that's kind of one of these little patterns that you might see forming. So sometimes do you think uh, c- control is disguised as a lot of things. Do you think a person who is an abuser consciously does these tests? Or do you think it's something that they've learned to do from maybe someone that's, I don't know, if an abuser can be abu- has been abused to to become an abuser? I think um, everything is on a spectrum. Mm-hmm. And you'll have most people who are unconsciously doing it. When you speak specifically of narcissistic abusers, mm-hmm. they're they're not consciously, well, the higher level people will be conscious, but for the most part, they're unconsciously doing everything. And a lot of the time they think that their lies are the truth. Like they live in an alternative reality when it comes to like the specifically the narcissistic abusers, if How that makes you... any sense. No, that that does make sense. And man, it's, like, it's funny, this conversation starting to trigger me on like some relationships I've had in the past where I was like, yeah, how did you not? Like, I remember like, you're lying right now. Like, you're literally lying to my face. And like, to make this make sense, how do you not see it? And it's like, oh, well, maybe their brain is programmed to not see it. Yeah, so I'm not trying to excuse any behavior. Oh, no. So like there's a uh, Lundy Bancroft uh, has a book called uh, Why Does He Do That? It's one of those it should be the first book you buy if you're in an abusive relationship. And he has nine different types of abusers. And then there's a 10th type of the, of, a, of an abuser who's, and that abuser is, it's a comorbidity. So you can be one of the other nine types, but then you can also have a personality disorder. You can be an addict. You can have all these other types of things that go over the, the other nine. And specifically with narcissistic abuse, which is, mm-hmm. you know, the show started with that term, but it's now all of domestic violence. But with that one, someone who has a narcissistic personality disorder is a stunted growth human being who is either somewhere between eight and 16 years old, let's say maturity wise. And like a teenager or a teen or a toddler or whatever that is, like an eight year old, I don't know if it's a toddler or not, but, um, they are only thinking about their own wound and their own problem and their own self. So they're always in their own childhood wound and they can't get themselves out of, okay, you hurt me. They're not thinking about how they hurt you because they're so into how hurt they are. And like a child, they act out in tantrums in crazy ways and as a child if you're an adult with a child you're like okay time to take a time out you're bigger than this person you know all these things this this little child is not a threat in any sort of way they're having a tantrum you understand what they're going through but when someone is a 35 year old male 230 pounds is strong and when they hit a wall they can put a hole in a wall um, it becomes a whole different story of, uh, you know, now we're talking about someone who is abusive and can say mean things. And it's very hard to figure out who they are because in some ways they are a full grown adult making adult decisions, got a job, might have a great job, make a lot of money. But then at the same time, their mental capabilities 
are very low in that sense because they they have no empathy for you because they're all about the pain and hurt that was caused to them when they were younger and they can't get out of that. It's it's you hear stories that some people are able to get out of that. Obviously there has to be some really big life moments for them to get into therapy and recognize that, but they can't even see it most of the time. One of the things that I've learned in listening to your podcast is that if you are with a narcissist or someone who is you know exhibiting those kinds of traits it's hard to, you know, you can't just be like, go and fix it. They have to, the one thing I've picked up on your podcast is like, they have to self-acknowledge that there is a problem, that they are part of that problem. And then they have to seek help. You can't just drag them somewhere and be like, okay, sit here and get fixed. Like it's a lot of like self-awareness work that has to be done. And they just aren't self-aware. That's it. That's the end of the story. Yeah, let's, let's wrap it up. Now, one of the things that I, the, for me, it was became more apparent. And so we, you know, mentioned before the enmeshment episode. So let's let's get some vocabulary out first. So first we have attachments. Uh, so can you talk a little bit more about what you've learned in having experts talk about attachments on your podcast? Uh, well, we've had some people come on and talk about uh, attachments and you know, there's the anxious attachment, you have the secure attached people and the avoidant. And I think for the, I guess it's hard to say with like the abuser specifically, but Mm -hmm. they're within you, what they're doing a lot of the time is when an addiction is created with the victim or the eventually the survivor of this abuse, they could have come in with a secure attachment style. And we've Mm -hmm. seen a lot of times where uh, people have good boundaries and eventually those boundaries just get eroded. And eventually, you know, because of how it's done and you're with someone for so long and we like to explain it in the sense of like you took a shot of heroin. If you're in a relationship with someone and for a whole year, it is fantastic. You are getting this drug of this is how it is. And you have a year's worth of information Mm -hmm. in your brain. And then things start to slide. And maybe it's not even a year. It could be a lot shorter. But if things start to slide from there, you're going to give some leeway. You have a whole year of what's going on, but you've been attached to them. And a lot of time they've done such good work with you that an addiction is formed. So all of a sudden, what starts happening is when they start to do like the push-pull, when they start to pull away, your boundaries are gone to a point where, oh, I'm anxious about this pull away. I'm going to jump over this boundary line and mm-hmm. I'm going to go and try and grab them because something is going on here. They're, you're not staying in your lane at this point. They've done a great job of doing that. And then they'll come back and smooth everything over and things are good again. And you're like, ah, the anxiousness is gone. And right. then again, they'll do the pull away and then back. And once they start doing that, you're on a string and you are anxiously attached at that point and they're in control of everything. So Even if you th- started as like a global index of secure, there is a way to be with someone who creates that anxious attachment that now you're just addicted to when the good times roll, <laughs> even yes. though it's riddled with bad. Exactly. And just like um, the only thing, if you're a heroin addict, the only thing that you can fix uh, your withdrawal symptoms from, because that's technically what it is, uh, is the heroin itself, which is the worst thing for you. So that's technically what you're doing. Uh, And then with uh, the people who are uh, 
the abusers, none of them are securely attached. So you'll most likely get uh, some that are extremely anxiously attached, like the, the, the jealous types of abusers who mm. are just like they're paranoid about everything. Sometimes you will get the ones that are just completely avoidant. And then you get the ones that are the mix, the anxious ones when you're going. Those ones are the hypocrites. They have a two way street. So like if you're going to do the thing that they said that like you're not like not you don't they don't want you to do this thing. They'll be anxious if you start doing it. But if they're going to do it, they'll be like avoidant about it. And like, you know, so it's two completely opposite like things that are going on, which then causes so much confusion within the victim or survivor. And, you know, how do you make sense of what is actually happening here? I'm going to mention a personal anecdote because it's the one thing I thought about when I was listening to Enmeshment and learning more about that. And that, um, so just to kind of lay the land of like that kind of abuse, um, I think about this relationship I had in my early twenties where the first six months were actually quite wonderful. It's exactly what you said. Like, like the foundation has been laid for grass to grow and some tulips over here and some roses over there and maybe even a nice tree, you know, and, um, and it was just like, you know, constant check-ins, text messages, not constant, like in the, in a addiction sort of way, but like, you know, secure. Like I was like, oh yeah, this is a, this is a healthy relationship. And then just like one day it was, because I always think back, like, where were the warning signs? Right. And I, I think I, for a while I was trying to like figure that out. And then it's like, I remember now the warning, like, the, you know, when the warning signs came out to me, when I heard your episode of measurement, like, the 15 years after the fact, I was like, oh, there's where the warning signs. So we'll talk about measurement in a second. But so in this relationship, I just want to like say that I, I definitely feel like I was a secure. I am generally a secure person personally. In that relationship, I would I would find myself kind of in the avoidance realm because I couldn't deal with the malignant narcissism in the sense that like I just felt like he would constantly be lying. And I was also put in this position where it's like, I can't leave because I was like very far away from my family. He would just show up. And I was just like, I don't want to deal with this anymore. Like, how do I get out of this? And then it's like, but you can't get out of it because they tell you, well, no one's ever going to like you the way I, no one's ever going to love you the way I love you. Or, you know, he would call me a fat cow. And I'm, I look back at those photos and I'm like, what is he talking about? You know, like, so you kind of like, they kind of wear you down too. Like, well, I guess this is what life is like now. You know? That's a big so line. Silly. Uh, no one will love you the way I love you. Yeah. It's, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a really, um, it's one of the most common lines that will be used specifically at, well, it'll be used maybe at the beginning of the relationship and it will sound romantic, but then mm-hmm. at the end of the relationship that being used, that is meant to, you know, to isolate you, to feel like you are alone and that uh, you're not lovable and that this person is the only person that will. You have nothing better or no prospects out there. And right. if you're far away from your family, you have no one you know, to really talk to uh, about it. And it's meant to also you know, maybe instill some guilt in you as well, like as far as like, oh, maybe I should give this person another chance. He really does love me. There's a lot of things right. built into that line and it's pulled out you know, sometimes at the beginning and then, you know, big time at the end when it's coming close to ending. 
Absolutely. And I think also just the way you just said about isolation, like I remember even like the belittling of my friends, like, oh, this person is not, you know, they're not really a friend or, oh, they're this or like, you know, they would say negative things. I'm like, these, I've known them longer than you. Like, why are you, they seem, they're nice to me or no, they looked at me weird. They're a bad person. It's like, you know, yeah, you start to like isolate. So, yeah. So I think- That's the divide and conquer right there. Yeah. And for anyone listening, yeah, exactly. And for anyone listening, I I do want to say- you know, because we work with attachment at my job too. And the one thing I've always tried to convey, especially to women, is like, you're not unique, right? Like, this is such a massive problem. And I'm not saying that you can't find a secure man out there. They are out there. <laughs> There's great men and women out there that um, that are not going to put you through hell. But if you have been through hell, that's not a slight on you. It happens is what I'm saying. It sucks and it happened. And I think like the acceptance of the past can only help us kind of move on to the future. Yeah, we've had CEOs on the show. I love it Mm -hmm. when we have therapists, social workers. We've had a lot of therapists and social workers on our show and they've been trained in seeing these things and it still happens. It can happen to anyone, no matter how rich or poor, no matter what background you are, no matter how smart you are, uh, it can happen to anyone. It's funny for me now, like the biggest trigger after that relationship is I don't like magicians and I don't like pranks. Like I don't like because I felt like, you know, because everything seems so well for so long. I don't like illusions now. I don't like if someone's like, oh, let's go watch a magician in Las Vegas. I'm like, absolutely not. Like I need to always know what's happening. Uh, I need transparency. And it's just weird how like other things get affected by something that has nothing to do with that, right? Randy, do you want to lay out the foundation of enmeshment is or how that happens? Well, as far as enmeshment with uh, family members? Yeah. So I guess let me like, let's t- tell me if this is how I understand if this is like the right way, right? So I feel like there's this thing, let's call it triangulation, right? So in a normal, rela- in a healthy parent relationship, you have the mother, well, let's say, because I don't want to be binary here, you have one parent and another parent and the child. And what happens is one of the parents has disappeared, not necessarily physically, they could still be there physically, but maybe they're not taking the emotional bandwidth of the house or the parenting, or maybe they are away, like maybe the quality time isn't there and they're maybe um, to a lot of business travel, or they've just checked out because they just don't have the bandwidth um, to help parent the child, right? So then what happens in this triangulation, You, everyone who's listening, you can't see it, but Brandon is nodding yes. <laughs> so in that, what happens is that that triangle where it was parent, parent, kid, so the parent one and parent two are at the top of this tr- inverted triangle and the kid is at the bottom, it tilts. And then at the top of the pyramid, now you have a parent and the kid and then absent parent at the bottom. And you see this in the sense that emotional, the emotional attachment parent one, the active parent, and parent two, the inactive parent would have had, has now shifted to parent one having that emotional relationship with the child. And then eventually that child grows up into an adult whose full emotional bandwidth is still on parent one. And then as a result, they can be avoidant in their relationships because they don't have the emotional bandwidth or they can be, um, uh, what's it called? They can be abusive. Yeah. So with enmeshment, what you were describing, like, so enmeshment, I guess, is 
can also be the broad scope of just a parent being fully involved in your life in a, a smothering way, in a controlling way, and just how you would figure like how something just becomes enmeshed like together mm-hmm. that there's no separation, there's no autonomy as well. The thing that you are describing is enmeshment, but it might be put under the term of emotional incest, which oh. is a very difficult term for a lot of people because when you're you say that term to the people who are in the relationships that you're specifically discussing, they'll use the word icky when mm. describing it. That's how they feel about it. And that is when the parents, like it's the real shift where like you have replaced the other parent and you are the confidant of that parent. You are the person that they dote on and everything you're, you know, you sometimes are parenting that parent at the same time. And there's a parentification that can also go in that. They'll tell you a lot of things that you're not, you shouldn't be as a child be hearing. And there's no line between being a parent and a child anymore. And you're involved in these adult conversations and it's putting a lot of responsibility on a child for the parent's well-being. And at a very young age, that child feels like the parent is their responsibility, that the parent's emotions are their responsibility. Everything about their well-being is. So when they become an adult, it's very difficult to separate at that point. And it's a, it's, it's a very... Um, there's no sexual stuff going on, but the emotional aspect of everything is not um, kosher. And right. it's it's a tricky thing for people who've been through that specific type to um, pull away from because like I'm, their heart just would melt. Um, this is the person that they've cared for and in many ways taken care of their whole life mm-hmm. at a very young age. So it's hard to pull away and they have to go through a lot of therapy because the guilt of doing so is tremendous. And then a lot of the time, the pushback when that separation starts to happen becomes, uh, you know, you might start getting yelled at and then the pain of hurting someone else's feelings um, is just tremendous. And it takes a lot of work. And then, as I said before, there's the other types of enmeshment where, you're not on that kind of level, but you're, you still have a parent who's really entwined in your life and just very controlling. Um, even though you might not have been a parent to them, they're just, they love control. You said that that episode was really popular and I'll make sure to include a link from that, that show, if your show on the show notes. Um, but do you, did that stay with you after? Do you feel like that's something that, um, that you think about? Well, with that episode, well, I come from a dysfunctional home. So mm-hmm. um, I I knew that is stuff like the back of my hand <laughs> when he was uh, talking in the sense of the, you know, how do you separate your life from someone who doesn't want you to be autonomous or unconsciously doesn't want you to be autonomous, which is saying things like, uh, you know, go out and do this and see the world, whatever. But like, 
and then not realizing that they're also, but you got to take care of me over here too. You know, it's like mm. this cognitive dissonance where you're, you're these mixed messages that are happening for so many people that deal with something like that. And I understand that cognitive dissonance. It's just, I, it's ingrained in me to have this mixed message, which is like, go be free and be yourself. And then at the same time, well, you got to do this, this, and this, and this. And it goes against everything that is being said. So a lot of the time your programming is just mixed up and it kind of stops you from doing a lot of things because you want to go do these things, but then you're being torn backward. And sometimes the person doesn't have to be tearing you backwards anymore. They've already done the work in your head. So you just kind of become motionless for a while. Or sometimes people do things that they might not um, have ever dreamed of doing because you might be living someone else's life and not realizing that you have your own needs, but you never thought about what those words uh, were or your, your wants, your desires. So I have a special kinship with the people that come on who uh, have, have those issues. I get them in a way that um, it, to me, I could sometimes recall, I can be like, this happened, this happened, this happened. They're like, yes. So it's just a right. weird thing as far as like the Catholic community goes and um, how everyone's life, no matter what it is, like if it was terrible, that is valuable to someone to validate their experience. I went off on a tangent there. Sorry. No, I love it. It's making me understand a little bit more about like how Narcissus Apocalypse was even created. It seems like, you know, you know, you have, you just, you know, told us and thank you for being so honest that you have, you grew up in a dysfunctional home. And so, yeah, like, you know, it's because one of the questions that I did have was like, well, how, how did this come about? You know, like you've created this community. Where's the community's foundation coming from? So this, the show, whole show was an accident. And what <laughs> happened was I was writing uh, a book about a narcissism and it was a humor book. And I started the show as a as the character from my book and on the third episode which is now episode number one i needed help because being funny on a podcast is different than writing it so i asked my friend to come and help me to like work off of me mm -hmm. and about halfway through i noticed that something was wrong with her so i broke character and i started to ask her real questions and I, you know, it was kind of what was going on with her at that moment. And then I put it out. And about four weeks later, I got an email from one listener. We had one listener in February of 2019. And they said, don't do the stuff. Don't do the funny stuff. Just do interviews. And I said, okay. And then I found someone on Reddit. And he grew up in a dysfunctional home. And we had completely different stories. But I could have finished every sentence of his i knew exactly what was similar his personality was exactly like mine and i made him take the enneagram test after which is a personality test and his mm -hmm. was exactly mine i could have told you how he would have reacted to everything and there was this great um i just it was a very cathartic experience to speak to someone who was exactly like you and uh, it so was you just think that because you had similar personality types you react this, you are judging something from the same, let's say, critical thinking yes. and value set. 
Yes. Um, wow. I n- I've never thought of that. That's so interesting. So um, I knew exactly how he would react to every situation. I could have said it. So even him. if the situation wasn't like your situation, you, if you had that situation in front of you, you would have reacted the same way he did. Yes. hundred percent. What is your Enneagram? I am an Enneagram type six with a five wing. Okay. That's good to know. Um, I like what are you? I'm an eight. Oh, I forget, I, th- I forget my wing. I think my wing is a three, but I might be wrong. But yeah, I'm a. Oh, it has eight. to be a seven or a nine. Okay, then. Oh, then there you go. I think it's an eight with a. I forget to be honest. I have it in an email, but I know I'm an eight, and I remember reading it after because we had an enneagram specialist come on the show, and she was awesome. I really like. Her. I should bring her back on. Um, and I was like, yes, this is very accurate. Like I do play as i read stuff i do play devil's advocate all day like oh what would someone else say about like i'm constantly looking at like both sides to like figure out like what's the right thing because i want to take the path of like what's right at all times Mm -hmm. and i think that's like just a very like eight that's just that's the eight you know well before we have guests on i make everyone take a enneagram test and i do that because um I'm trying to figure out what their basic fears and what their core desires are. And for the most part, what happens with an abuser is they'll recognize what their basic fear and core desire is. And for the most part, they'll go and attack that. So they'll butter it up at first and then they'll take it away. So if you were to be an abuser and go after me, I am a six. I'm a loyalist. And my, for me, a big thing is security. That is, I, I like security. I need security. I need to uh, feel safe and I like reliability. And I, uh, my identity a lot of the time is that I am a safe, reliable person. You can rely on me. I am your friend. And so if someone comes along, no matter how long I've done this, if they've done a really good job and come along, like they, they like me and they butter me up, you're like, you're reliable, you're good, you're safe, and they butter that up. Eventually, they can also come off as being a very reliable person to me. I'll take care of that for you. You don't have to worry about that because sixes are have a ton of anxiety. We have the most anxiety out of anyone in the Enneagram. And so if they're going to be taking a load off of me and all my worry and all those things, I'm like, thank you, thank you, thank you. But if they are an abuser, they can do that and they have me. Then all of a sudden, all they have to do is start to like really poke at, like put me down about my reliability or put me down Mm -hmm. about my security kind of stuff. And then they might not answer a text from me for a day and a half. All of a sudden, oh, this thing didn't get done. And then they can come in and smooth it over. Then they can take it away again. And then they can, they can just disappear. And for me, that, if they were able to keep me in place for a long time where they loved me and did everything or maybe feel secure for a year, and then that started happening, good luck to me. And I've been doing this show for a very long period of time. Right. Well, okay, follow-up question. Are there Enneagrams that tend to be prone to narcissistic so abuse we, and or a, a avoidant and anxious relationships sorry say that again are there enneagrams that are more, more prone to um, abuse and slash or being in an anxious slash avoidant relationship well the ones that we have most on the show are enneagram type twos which is the helper they are um. the 
biggest one on there. A lot of the people that we're dealing with are covert abusers and are big time victim players. So when you have someone who's always kind of playing the victim, people have wronged me. Uh, the Enneagram yeah. two is the helper. They're going to come in. A lot of twos are, are teachers, they're social workers, they're therapists. Like that's a big profession that comes in with the two. And then you have nines, which would be up there because they're caretakers and they don't um, challenge anything. They don't fight back. So they take everything on. They just want things to be peaceful. So you can abuse them and they'll just hope that it just stops or goes away or they just don't say anything about it. You know, they're too afraid to because they don't want like uh, arguments. So the nine is up there. and. I, those are probably the, the two most uh, dominant ones of all. And, you know, those two specific enneagrams that you just mentioned, they tend to attract uh, people in careers that are put in these very vulnerable positions where they could be financially abused in these relationships too, where it almost, you know, it can also be financially crippling to leave an abusive relationship. Oh, yeah. Financial abuse is arguably, you know, it's, Possibly, I think it's maybe the biggest reason why people won't leave. And totally, you know, when you, especially when you have kids, like oh where are you going to go with with your children? You're a single parent now, and On a teacher salary. You might, not, you might not have been working uh, before right. if you're a stay at home uh, parent. So that eventually becomes the 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 biggest thing. Yeah. Yeah. In your episodes, you tend to uh, have a bit, I feel like there's like a formula, right? Like first you talk about someone, you talk about their childhood, their parents, their siblings, interpersonal relationships before talking about meeting their narcissist. Um, and then you go on onto the light bulb moment. So in that formula, what has, what do you feel has helped you in having it in this format? Well, the first thing is that everyone is not a natural storyteller and you have to help people figure out how to tell their stories. And in year one, and I'm sure with your podcast, you know when people turn off episodes. So we started to notice, okay, an episode was turned off here. An episode was turned off here. Turned off here. Why? So we have to go back and I listened to those and we had to start getting rid of redundancy. And so once someone tells the same type of a, a maybe story in a row uh, of the same type of abuse, someone would be like, okay, I get this person's story. I'm going to turn it off. So we had to figure out how do you honor the person who is telling the story to let them tell their story the way they want to, but also uh, for the people who are listening to have them listen the whole way through. Because if no one's listening the whole way through, then it doesn't honor the person who's telling the story as well. So we came up with eventually, like over time, like really to do it in five different parts. And, and within that, just kind of figure out how to help them create their own story. So it gives them structure because I've, you know, even today you can talk to someone who's like, I don't even know where to begin. So we give them these beginning points and, you know, it's probably easier to get through point one and two, which is the family stuff, what your life was like before, and then the meeting of the person. 
And the meat and potatoes of like the middle part is always the hardest, which is which are the stories to tell. And if you've been in a relationship for 30 years and you're trying to get a story down to be like an hour and a half long, you know, you have to kind of figure out what are the moments that kind of are the ones you want to tell. And Mm -hmm. so we started coming up with um, themes and to start looking at what are the big themes of your story. And that could be control, that could be identity issues. So if you have your own struggling identity, uh, if someone was to come in and butter up you and your identity and who you are and you can be whoever you want and they start taking that away, well, that can be a theme. So I tell people, here's a theme for you. Now, all of the abuse tactics that start to come, they're all going to probably hark back to that theme on what's going on. So start to like, as your story's going forward, pull from the sky, pull from those themes and start being, this abuse happened and this is why, and this is how it reflected on that theme. And this is how they smoothed it over. This is how I felt. And now I've moved forward. And we try to look for the moments that sunk you lower or moments where you had like, my therapist told me about a narcissism. I looked it up. That's an aha moment. It might be brief, but it's very important to your story. It's a plot point, just like in a movie. So you kind of figure out what those plot, those plot points are in someone's story, and then you start placing them, and then you kind of unfold that way. It's hard to do because uh, uh, not everyone is, as I said, not everyone is a natural storyteller. It's very rare you get someone who is like really snappy at telling a story, and those people don't need any help. They just can do it off the top of their head and go. Are there any episodes that you had like you hold on to like you feel like you think back on a lot um in year one most definitely Mm -hmm. there's a lot in year one year one was you're just special oh i'm gonna tell you a story when you create a show by accident Mm -hmm. and it's in the domestic violence space Uh, you don't really have an idea what you're doing. You're kind of figuring out as you're going along and you don't necessarily know the significance of everything because you're sitting in an apartment with a microphone and you're beaming it out to the world. There's no video and you just put it out in the world and then you put your thing down and then you answer emails and then you talk back on the phone. So there's a disconnect. And a long time ago, I was in a pre-intervention for someone, and that person wasn't in the room, but there were other people in the room, and there was about- What is a pre-intervention? A pre-intervention is, uh, so everyone gets on the same page with each other before the intervention happens, so everyone can have a united front with the person you're about to- have an intervention for. But who's the intervention for? The abused or the abuser? Oh, no. This is for a family member with an addiction problem. Oh, okay. 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 So in there, uh, we had a bunch of family members and there was a psychologist and a social worker. And everyone was sugarcoating things when talking. And I didn't say a word. I was just sitting there. And eventually the psychologist looks at me and then looks at everyone and goes, everyone here, be quiet. You are all not telling me the truth. You're all lying. You haven't said a word. You know the truth. Tell me the truth. So 
for me, this was a big moment because I've been trying to tell everyone about this individual for since I was little, since I was very little. And I told a story. And after the story was done, a person in the room said, how come you never told us that before? And then I said, I got another story for you. And they put their hands up in front of their face and they said, I don't want to know. And it was natural and it was instinctive that they did that. And then I said, that's why we're here today. And that person, that social worker, sorry, that psychologist gave me a voice in this room where I'd given up trying to voice all of this for a very long time. You know, this all fell on deaf ears for so long, you just give up. And that person was the beginning of kind of giving me my voice back, or at least the trickle of it. And that's when I realized that that's what I'm doing on the show, that I'm giving people a voice. So I take my job seriously in in the sense of, oh, I get to be this person and we're giving people their voices uh, back. So when I, I recognized that probably about six months in after doing it, and that's why the, the year one was special. So many interesting things happened. So many serendipitous things or synchronistic things kept on happening. So... I like when I did an episode with a lawyer for the first time, I went to bed one night saying, I need to learn about the law. I need to learn about custody, court, divorce, all of that stuff. I need to contact a lawyer. I woke up the next day in my inbox was an email from a former public defender from Seattle. And she said, you need me on your show. You need to learn about custody, court, divorce. She was now a wow. divorce and whatever journey. And I said, this is so right. weird. And when we did that episode, I was so proud. Um, but still talking to everyone in year one, I think I remember most of the people that I talked to in year one. 2020, I don't remember many people <laughs> during that year. But did, um, do you feel like now the stories in 2023 – um, have like this new layer of, you know, pandemic abuse. You know, there's a lot of domestic violence that happened. Yeah, n- now we're starting to see more lockdown. stories that have stuff going on specifically in the pandemic. Those are now right. coming because now, now they're probably about, you know, a year out of what they were sure. dealing with and ready to start talking about it. So it's now starting to come out. That'll be very interesting for your upcoming seasons to see how that is going to like affect, you know, what's being said. Um, Brandon, this is a dating and relationship podcast. I would love to know what you think are the initial red flags. Like what have you learned as initial red flags that you might be dating someone who is not good for you? Um, well, the first one is... You know, obviously you're looking for actions that are not matching their words. Mm-hmm. That is something that you can start to pick up on uh, pretty early. Uh, the way they talk about women in general, I think, is Ooh. something that y- you should be looking for. You know, if they're in talking, tell me, tell me more. Well, about if they're that. just talking negatively uh, about women, uh, or you have like a hint of disrespect, maybe towards their uh, mother. Um, Mm. Obviously, when it comes to family stuff, not everyone comes from a perfect family, but 
sometimes the apple doesn't fall far from the tree either. So if you do meet the family, you know, if the family's acting strange or you notice interesting family dynamics, that's a sign to, to, to look for. Um, rushing everything. If everything's really moving way too fast, uh, that is a problem. Obviously, your gut is um, trying to sometimes everyone's everyone's gut is always right. And, yeah. you know, they're just trying to make you not feel your feelings anymore. So they're trying to overwhelm it in any sort of way. So moving too fast and saying, I love you very quickly, wanting to move in very quickly is obviously a huge uh, warning sign. What do you, um, what do you define as moving in too quickly as? That's a tough one. I don't know. Well, I, I, uh, you, you have to remember, I'm older. So I'm 46. I'm going to be 47 this month. So to me, I would be like, anything, like if it's like six months and you're moving in, that's pretty quick to me. Um, I agree a, with you. Totally. A year seems to be really quick to me. Um, that, you know, you're still, it's only a year. This gets really controversial. But for me, it's like if your intention is to get married one day, don't move in until you're after you're engaged. Uh, I just feel like sometimes people use like getting moving. Like I feel like sometimes people move in with each other too quickly, not because they actually want to check off the next milestone in their relationship, but just to save on rent. And yes, there is a benefit on, you know, being up with someone and sharing in those expenses. But I frankly don't want you to be in a relationship where you're Venmoing each other, you know, what you paid in toilet paper and detergent. Like I want you to, if your intention is to get married and for a lot of people, they have no intention on getting married. That's fine. You can have a different civil partnership, but there's a way to combine expenses (laughs) and talk about your financial health all the time so that you don't have that kind of relationship where it's 50, 50 or whatever, whatever that dynamic is. Cause then it's not, a relationship with a partner in life. This is my opinion, of course, but it's like a roommate relationship that you have sex with. And that's, I think, personally, a very different dynamic. But that's just me inserting my opinion on a question that I asked you. <laughs> <laughs> so you want like the share, like um, shared finances, shared everything once you're in the house and like you have a shared account. And I mean, like you can everything. certainly have separate accounts. I think that there's a lot of uh, freedom in having separate accounts, but there should be a joint checking account for the shared expenses that you're both contributing to. And maybe that's 50-50 you contribute to that checking account, or maybe it's proportional to your income. I, you know, Every couple has its own rules, I suppose. I will say that studies have shown that if you do share um, an account, that the rate that the, uh, what's called the... Um, the happiness index of that relationship is higher than those who keep separate accounts because you have to constantly have hard conversations about your financial health. It's not a once a year conversation. It's a every other day or once a week conversation. And if you are able to have a toolbox of language to have those conversations like financial health, then you have the communication tools to talk about other hard things happening in your relationship as well. Like my parent got sick or 
or we need to save for our child education or, hey, I lost my job. Like you can you have already that background and speaking with each other from a financial perspective to have other difficult conversations. And that's what the studies are showing. Right. Like that's what we're seeing. But um, but there's you know, there's also a place where abusers can financially abuse someone when you take them away from that equation. And that's not what I'm talking about. Yeah, with the abuser, it would be you're not allowed to have right. your own account. Right. And that's you know, a whole, that's a very yeah. different thing than I'm describing. Um, so, do, Brandon, do you, um, you know, you? I would love to end this episode the way you end your episode, which is you always ask the advice from the survivor of, you know, what would you give, what would you, what advice would you give to people to, uh, that are listening to this episode? Well, uh, to be overly cautious, first of all, as most people say, is trust your gut and just take things slow, mm. have open communication, be communicative. If you have questions, ask them. Oh, that's such a good, that's such a good advice right there. And if there's pushback on those questions... They get defensive about those questions. That's, that's not an a good sign. That's an answer so, too. Yeah, that's an answer. So always ask questions. You're always allowed to ask questions. You know, when you go to work and you're trying to learn, you need to ask questions. You're not going to learn. So always do that and, you know, keep a journal. Like keep a journal of how you're feeling and always kind of go back like what happened today why am i feeling this way you know yeah. people have food journals people have all these things have a relationship journal where you're able to be like okay i haven't been feeling well for this long period of time now um why is that what is the common denominator that is going on and mm -hmm. am i being blamed for things like so just kind of keep a journal of the relationship going in and that way you're noticing things. So if things do, do start kind of getting off of the rails a little, that you have like a history to look at. So you're not, even if someone tries to gaslight you, you know every day going in like what has transpired and what conversations you did have. So if someone says, I didn't, I didn't say that or that never happened, you can go back and check. So if these things start happening really early, you're already kind of prepared for what might be coming and you can get out sooner than before. And then always have your deal breaker list, have your values list. Just like if you were a brand and you were a company, what are your brand values? And if you have your brand values, if this person doesn't fit my brand values, see you later. If right. you know th if there's a deal breaker on there, see you later. Like have those types of things, and then stay hard and fast to it. Like just stay hard and fast. Not even if that's a, th a thing, but just stay like hard uh, in your values. I love that. That's that's excellent advice, Brandon. And I, I wish more people asked questions. I, I get questions every single week during Ask a Matchmaker, and some of those questions are like, "How do I tell him that I need more communication?" Or like, I need, I need, I don't want to just text. I want a phone call. And it's like, ask them, ask, like, tell them, tell them your expectations, ask them. And then if they are defensive over reasonable communication <laughs> expectations, that's an answer that you just have to accept and let them go. Like, you know, whew. 
scarcity mindset that keeps us in horrible relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Brandon, where can people find your podcast and any socials? So the podcast Narcissist Apocalypse can be found on all podcast apps. We also have a website, NarcissistApocalypse.com, where you can find our podcast on there as well. And our socials are uh, on Instagram, Narcissist Apocalypse. Um, Brandon, let me ask you one last question. Does your community um, like interact with each other on like Reddit or Facebook or anything like that? Like, do you have any of those pages? Um, we have a Facebook. There's a support group on our Facebook that people join. There's like 1,800 people in that group. I don't wow. interact in that group. Uh, okay. I have my own private support group, which is also at NarcissistApocalypse.com. We have okay. about like 100 to 120 people in there, depending on whatever. And we do Zoom calls. I do on Zoom calls with people. I just kind of direct traffic and people post on the boards. They give each other support. Um, and so we, we have amazing. that. But on Reddit, we don't have like a Reddit group or uh, any with other Discord place that I know that people yeah. congregate at all. Right. Okay, cool. Hey, listen, uh, for anyone listening, uh, I'm going to include all of those links on the show notes. So if you want to check out Brandon's website, NarcissistApocalypse.com or his Facebook group or his Instagram, check out those show notes uh, and all the links will be there. Brandon, it was amazing having you on. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about Narcissapocalypse and, uh, and your story. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure being here. And thank you for listening to Ask a Matchmaker. If you'd like to work with me and my team in 2023, make sure to check out the show notes. There's links to a variety of ways of how we can work together. Plus, we just posted the dates for our March and April Agape Intensive coaching programs. Thanks again. Be lovable, but more importantly, be likable. See you next week.